Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the On The Way There podcast, which is a program for people who enjoy learning together and celebrating each other's growth. This is your host, Amina, and it is so wonderful to talk with the incredible Salat Pervez again. She is a researcher with specific interest in mid-tier private schooling in Karachi, Pakistan. And we are very lucky to have her on the podcast. So, assalamu alaikum, Salat. How are you today? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. I'm doing well, alhamdulillah. Thank you so much for having me. Again, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, Amina. Likewise, I was so lucky to be able to interview you for a previous program I produced, Third Space Thoughts to Policy, where you talked about a fascinating research project on creating reading cultures in Pakistan. So many listeners were interested to hear about your work, and the episode where you talked about it even made the top and trending list on Messy FM. Could you tell us more about the project and how it has changed over time? It's been really quite a journey. So it started all in the classroom basically. My husband and I, with our two children at that time, had moved to Pakistan and I had been recruited to teach at a school. And the teaching was something, you know, honestly, I've always said, I don't want to be a teacher, but it's one of those things when you're bitten by it, you just can't let go. And that's really what happened to me. Mm-hmm. So I was teaching eighth and ninth graders English literature at a private school, you know, in Karachi, where basically it's all middle-class population. And it was just really interesting because what I was trying to do was I was trying to make sure that beyond just understanding the text, they were able to engage with the text. They were analyzing, they were making connections, they were sort of thinking through things, even relating it to their lived experiences. And I found that some of my students were able to do that really, really well, whereas others were just sort of blank. They really, to me, I felt that they were not displaying the kind of thinking skills that they could Mm -hmm. potentially. And so that's really where it all began with me trying to figure out, okay, how do you teach thinking skills? And so I started, you know, delving into early childhood development, education, different kinds of uh, educational theories that were out there. Part of me understood that, you know, something has to happen in the early years. Meanwhile, I was also, you know, raising my two children at that time. Mm -hmm. And my daughter was in third grade when one day she came to me and she said, Mama, books are boring. Now, mind you, she was going to the same school where I was teaching. And I was just sort of really flabbergasted because I had been reading to her since she was three months old. And as far as I knew, she loved reading. Mm -hmm. So this was one of those things where I was like, wait a minute, what is going on here? And I was actually able to relate it to what my students were experiencing because they used to tell me the same thing that books are boring, the ones that were not able to sort of come up to the level that I wanted them to. Mm. So... Obviously, as a mother, I wanted my daughter to read and to enjoy reading. And so I started looking into what can I do? And I started reading aloud to her. And then when I started researching reading aloud, I realized that that's something that's really a significant sort of aspect of becoming independent readers. 
So these are little, you know, different, different pieces that I'm sort of gathering in my mind and making connections. The thinking skills are important. Reading aloud is important because it helps develop reading skills. Because I did understand that the students that were struggling in my classes were also struggling with the reading load. They were really behind on their reading. So Mm -hmm. I'm making these connections in my mind. And so then I really latched onto this and I started doing a lot of workshops in the school because I figured, okay, by then I I was, you know, able to help my daughter sort of overcome this barrier that she had developed. She was reading again, enjoying it. And so I said, you know what, this is something that we need to work on. Maybe other children are also, you know, if third grade becomes a place or fourth grade that a child stops reading, then by the time they reach eighth or ninth grade, then obviously then they no longer can enjoy reading. So I did a lot of motivational workshops around reading with teachers, Mm -hmm. with students to talk about the challenges and how to overcome challenges to reading and how to develop sort of an interest in reading so that teachers understood, for instance, that learning how to read is not the same thing as wanting to read. So a lot of times, you know, in a culture like Pakistan or other places, what tends to happen is once you teach the children how to read, you expect that, okay, they will sit in a corner and enjoy reading. But that's not really what actually happens because the nature of the text keeps changing. Mm -hmm. So anyway, meanwhile, we moved back to the States and I had an opportunity to do my master's. And, you know, this stuff still, it's in my mind. How, you know, how can I really figure out these different puzzles? And I'm also getting more exposed to the kind of work that USAID is doing in development and education and the different conversations that are going on. And my master's really helped me sort of phrase all of that in more research terms Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and think more deeply about it. And so I realized, you know, there's certain ingredients that are necessary in order to have sort of like a school-wide reading culture, right? You need to have committed teachers, you need to have engaged parents, you need to have access to books, you need to have students regularly attending school and attaining grade level literacy, you need to have infrastructure in place. Basically, a lot of things that the development folks are sort of saying are lacking in, you know, in the lower classes and among the poor and impoverished, and which is why even attaining literacy becomes a problem, right? So once you have these things in place, the research does tell you that early literacy tends to, you know, lead to later reading success. However, that was not what I was seeing in Pakistan. And so I started digging in a little bit more and I realized that a crucial thing that's really important is language. Mm. We're taking a lot of the research from Western monolingual contexts and applying them wholesale on multilingual contexts. And that is something that's not really sort of mapping so neatly on there. And so In the end, when it doesn't, instead of understanding, it's the language that's an issue. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a bit. What tends to happen is people start looking at, oh, there are no public libraries. People are not just disposed towards reading. And all these sort of, you know, even like literature or say something like an article or two that I read that, you know, people are just lazy when it comes to reading. You know, these kinds of stereotypes that sort of start forming, but you don't realize that, wait a minute, you're looking at a middle class where what schools have done is they have 
taken on international curricula, for instance, in Karachi, it's the British educational system, which centers English as the language of instruction. But, you know, these kids, they go home and they speak Urdu. They don't speak English at home. Right. So there's right. this. So there's this language divide that's going on. There's a duality there. And you know what? You can get them to read really well. You can get them to even speed read, but that doesn't mean they're fully understanding what they're reading. Hmm. And so, you know, the cognitive clarity is not there. And how long are you going to keep translating things in your head? And you know what? There's some kids who thrive because, you know, they may be avid readers. They may have support at home. They may have parents who speak in English. They may have a lot of exposure, whatever it is. They might just be gifted and talented. But what do you do with the rest? Mm -hmm. And so over time from something that was about sort of, okay, well, how do we build thinking skills or how do we help kids become readers? It came to, okay, we need to look at the system of education that we're utilizing. What kind of learning is taking place? And then what's the output? Right, because a lot of times in these schools, and, and mind you, you know, this is sort of like a subculture, right? So the culture of elite education has come from colonial times. And it works in Pakistan and in other places because elites are cosmopolitan. Elites to an extent have a sort of, you know, monolingual culture because English is a language that is being spoken at home, right? Mm -hmm. There's much greater exposure to it then the middle class. Mm. And the funny thing is, if you read a lot of the literature, they're not even disaggregating the middle class from the elites. It's all supposed to be private schooling in general is supposed to be elite and urban when that's not the case at all, especially if you look at a place like Karachi, which is, you know, if you look at from the 1990s onwards, the sprouting of middle-class private education really mushroomed. So this is recent history that's happened. And what they did was, oh, wow, these elite schools are working. So we're just going to follow that model. And we're going to take research that, you know, that says we do. And so they're doing everything right. And yet the problem is that the language does present certain complications to the formation of reading culture that would not otherwise be there if it is a monolingual culture. And the reason why Karachi is a good place to study that is because Karachi has, you know, predominantly two languages, which is Urdu, which is the national language, and English, which is the medium of instruction in these schools. And in other parts of Pakistan, there are a lot more regional languages involved, a lot more dialects that, you know, that kids hear predominantly. Yes, you do have some, for some people, Urdu is even a second language, but for quite, you know, a majority, Urdu is their first language. So it contains that problem that you're seeing in other parts as well. You know, how do you handle multilingualism or bilingualism? And so that is something that I'm researching. And, and within that, then you also look at, okay, you're able to get students through school. They do really well. Eventually mm -hmm. in, in exams, they, a lot of them go abroad for studying. All of those things are happening. Some of them study in Pakistan and they also succeed. But really, instead of having collective progress, you're really having individual advancement. So again, you know, I'm looking at what can a middle class do in nation building? What exactly 
do we need like a lot of policymakers again in the development world they're constantly saying policymakers that literacy leads to development but my experience is that no there there is no seamless arc between literacy and development you need important mediators such as you know you need thinking skills mm. you need writing skills you need knowledge production right you need all of these things in place before you can get to the development piece and so these are all the things that you know it kind of started from one class you know like in the classroom why our kids are not really learning the way they should be learning to going back to my own personal life helping my daughter overcome something and then eventually you know asking far bigger questions that's really been sort of the journey that i've had and a lot of it has sort of design thinking elements to it because you take sort of like a problem and you say well okay what what exactly is going on here like you know how can you empathize with people who are experiencing this problem and then what do you define what exactly is the need right and then you come up with an idea and then you sort of come up with okay this could be a possible solution and then you do you test that solution so obviously there's there's no one device that I'm trying to sort of design this is more of a qualitative sort of you know idea that I'm hoping that we are able to figure out because I am convinced that this is not something limited to Karachi it's in a lot of post colonial settings where you have an international you know dominant colonial language that's being used in school which is not being spoken at home which is causing all sorts of ruptures in the society so yeah so i hope that helps yeah absolutely i think that what you're researching is very fascinating and there's just so many different layers to it you know when you look at the the yeah. impacts of colonialism on education and then how that has furthered certain inequalities and then you talk about how of course those who are in more impoverished classes are at a greater disadvantage I also, and yeah I appreciate how you talked about your passion for teaching which you didn't necessarily think you right away would be passionate about because at the beginning you talked about oh I don't necessarily want to be doing this but then once right. you started you were like oh wow I really love this and that kind yeah. of leads really well into our next question for you, because I'd like to take a step back and ask you if you could tell us a bit more about your academic and career journey, which led you to want to work on this. You have a really fascinating skill set. You're excellent at research, creative writing, editing, IRB guidelines, project management, as well as so many other areas. And I, I could go on because I'm familiar with your background and I'm grateful to have been able to have been a colleague of yours and I could keep telling our audience all about these great accomplishments, but I think our listeners would really benefit from hearing more about your path as personally told by you. You kind of told us a bit about this already in the last question, but here maybe you could tell us more about what you studied in the past and the different areas you've worked and how these experiences allowed you to discover your current passion. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, my family and I migrated to the States from Pakistan when I was almost 12 years old. And my English was not super great at that time, but, you know, I eventually started developing fluency in the language. And one of the ways I did that is through reading. 
And so for the longest time, I used to think that, you know, I became a reader after the age of 12. But at one point I understood that, you know what, that's not true. I've always been a reader. I just switched languages at that age because when I lived in Pakistan, as a little kid, I used to read voraciously in Urdu. So language, again, is something, you know, that connects that, you know, how, how do we, in the end, wh what is it that we like to sort of delve in in terms of our experiences, right? So right. one of the things that I'm very keen to do now is to sort of go back and study Urdu literature because I never really got that opportunity. But reading has always been something very personal for me. The first time I really had to share it was when I became a mother. And then I had to share it again when I became a teacher. And now, of course, you know, beyond my students, with society at large, as I continue to work on this project, which I'm very committed to, about creating thinking cultures and reading cultures and writing cultures across the board, globally as well as locally. So I have a bachelor's in journalism and English literature, which is how I ended up teaching English literature in Karachi. Really, the first time I utilized my degree was when I was in Karachi. Otherwise, I've you know, always identified myself as a writer and I've done a lot of journalistic and content related writing. I think the fact that I was sort of in Pakistan living my life was not there for the purpose of anything beyond, you know, and just happened to be recruited for this position and I was teaching and I was also trying to raise my children in the best way possible. I think all of that really helped me to sort of see a puzzle and try to solve it. And then of course, you know, the masters that I did here, when I came back, I focused on global education as my specialization in the global affairs major that I was doing. So by then I was like, no, I need to focus on education. One of the ways that I've really benefited career-wise is that working at the International Institute of Islamic Thought, the IIIT, I found myself in a very academic environment. It was something where Constantly, I was surrounded by scholars who were always talking about, you know, the expertise in their fields. And I recognized that, you know, you need a, how do you get there? You know, what, what are some steps that you need to take? And the master's was one of those steps that I took, which really helped me. When IIIT began the Advancing Education in Muslim Societies project and the very first wave of mapping the terrain, I was involved in the full life cycle of that first wave. You know, I mean, in every sense, I was involved when it came to, you know, identifying surveys, when it came to coordinating with the offices, when it came to IRB, how are we going to get through getting IRB approval? Every step of the way I was involved and, in, you know, I learned so much and I replicated that in my own personal research on uh, reading cultures in Karachi. Just similarly, I went through the process of finding surveys that I wanted to use. And then, you know, I found a professor who would work with me, partner with me. And then we were able to get IRB approval. And I was able to go to Pakistan. And I took two, actually, research trips to Pakistan in which I gathered data, both quantitative and qualitative. So I was learning so much that it's really, you know, benefited me based on the environment I was in and the mentorship that I was receiving at the IIIT. But at the end of the day, I'm a writer. And so what I really, really want to do is write a book uh, about this. And I'm hoping- Oh, I that... can't wait to read that. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that, you know, I've been thinking about how I'm going to sort of approach it, but definitely one piece is going to be the history of education in colonial times. 
and the different ways that it has continued, how the middle class has sort of, you know, found a niche for itself. And, you know, a lot of times we tend to sort of not vilify, but we tend to sort of um, say, you know, like, private education, no, 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 we really, public education is what's really important. And that's really what we need to work on. But you know what it is? We have to recognize that there was a void in Karachi mm -hmm. for the middle class, because the deterioration of the public schooling system was just at, it was at a roller coaster speed, basically, due to, you know, certain policies that were in place from the government. And we do actually have to recognize the important role that local entrepreneurs played in developing these schools and providing quality education. Yes, it may not be perfect education. Education, I don't know if, if there's anywhere in the world where it is perfect, but we have to recognize that. And I want to sort of talk about that as well. I want to show the work that the middle class has done, the quality work that it has done in giving, you know, no doubt at a price, but what was the alternative? The alternative was really, you know, poor schooling. So I want to be able to sort of showcase that, but at the same time, I want to show how, you know, language has posed different kinds of ruptures and how do we sort of find our way back to a place where we can have better learning in these schools, inshallah. Inshallah. Thanks so much for walking us through your path and all the different experiences that helped better improve your own work as well. And finally, if there was one thing you could tell anyone else listening out there about what you've learned on the way there that you think would help them, what would it be? You know, I think the one thing that I feel that's been important is the outsider experience, right? The outsider experience with insider insight, basically, right? So I was never um, a teacher. I, I don't have license, but I found myself in a classroom wanting to make sure that the students that I have do really well, that I cater to them in a way that, that serves them in the best way possible. And then the insider insight that I got from you know, raising my own children and the different challenges that they were encountering within the same environment. I think that was something that was important. And I, I think a lot of times we discount that outsider experience and it's tough. Like I, I'm experiencing a little bit of how tough it is because finding funding is really difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. anyone who takes unconventional paths, you know, it's okay. Are, can we really trust them? Because we've kind of built a system which we say, well, everyone has to get through these, this, this, and this. And then we find credibility in them. Then we say, no, 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 they, what they say matters basically. But unfortunately, a lot of times that perspective may be just, you know, based on books and text, not real experience. So I think I would like to emphasize that if somebody finds themselves, you know, in a situation where they are the outsider, where they are taking an unconventional path, though it's going to be difficult, but if you really believe in what you are doing, keep working hard on it, you know, keep, keep trying and hopefully, you know, you're going to somehow eventually sort of break through somebody who I find, uh, like I read about this person a long time ago. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Wilson Bentley. 
and you know I love snow like I'm always you know I love snow and one of the things I that, know you do yes and one of the things that really struck me when I, a few years ago I was reading about Wilson Bentley mm-hmm. was that he was the one who he was living up in Vermont he was literally just a farmer with you know who microscope and he loved photography and he's the one who showed people eventually through his evidence-based photography that he was doing that snowflakes are not really alike that each snowflake is very different than the other you know when we look at snowflakes they all look the same to us right Mm -hmm. but but the interesting thing is that when he approached the smithsonian with like 20 years of this evidence that he had gathered with you know describing his methods and findings and everything at the end of the day he was really looked at as a farmer with a hobby and was yeah. deemed unscientific, right? But over time, we've learned that what he was doing was really, really a lot of rigorous research that he, was, he had self-taught himself. So again, I think it's important for us as a society to make room for people who, who take mm-hmm. unconventional paths and mm-hmm. figure things out come up with solutions to things that sometimes that we don't even realize was a problem to begin with, but is posing all sorts of complications in the society. So that's what I would say. So keep going, you know, and inshallah, hopefully we will, including myself, break through at some point, inshallah. Inshallah, inshallah. And also, I, I really like that expression. So you said outsider experience with insider insight. Yes, a kind of a mouthful, but it's, I was thinking about it earlier today, and it's not just the outsider experience, you need to have that insider insight, not necessarily the expertise in in that subject matter, but, but a level of insight, right? And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, as a mm -hmm. parent, and as a teacher, who was, who has certain number of experience teaching, I believe that I was that outsider with that insider insight. Yeah, I think that that's really, really wonderful i also love the way that you phrased it of course because you're a writer (laughs) and so the writers are always so eloquent and so solat we're really really grateful that you took the time to speak with us today we're rooting for you and wishing all the best for you with this project you're working on and all your future endeavors and i'm sure that people listening in will have found this very beneficial for their own self and for their own journey Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're always very, very kind. I mean, I really appreciate you and our friendship. And I hope we can talk again. And maybe at some point when that book hopefully will come out, at least I'm committed to it. Likewise, likewise. Yes, yes. I want to read your book. And I look forward to the next time when you're going to talk to me about your amazing book and we're going to do a deep dive into that and tell everybody about it because people should go and read it because you always provide such great insights and bring so many different skill sets to the table thank you i really appreciate your support always of course of course anytime anytime thank you all for listening to stay up to date about everything happening with the on the way there podcast including upcoming guests you can follow our social media pages our instagram handle is on the way there ig and we have a facebook page which you can find by searching for on the way there podcast 
And you can listen to this podcast on Anchor FM and Spotify. And thank you all again for listening. We hope that you'll join us next time. And really thank you for allowing another person's story to become a part of your journey as we are all on the way there. <laughs>